What is up, Cake Nation, and welcome back to the Chemistry Cake online podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and for today's episode, I wanted to introduce a three-episode miniseries called Project Pivot. Um, so to kick off the miniseries, I thought I would take the opportunity to chat about a protein called ferritin. Now, my experience with this protein is pretty interesting because while I currently work with metal-loaded polymeric nanoparticles, my initial project was aimed to study the magnetic properties of ferritin's core. So a little bit about this protein. Ferritin is a fairly large protein with a molecular weight clocking in at approximately 450 kilodalton. That is 450,000 atomic mass units. I am going to pause for dramatic effect. All of the small molecule chemists are probably losing their minds right now. I know I did. Um, so <laughs> the protein is comprised of 24 subunits in any varying ratio of L and H subunits. L for light and H for heavy. And this is a nod at the length of the subunits amino acid chain. Uh, and the structure of these subunits is a four helix bundle plus a fifth smaller alpha helix motif. It is a hollow protein with an outer diameter of 120 angstrom and an inner diameter of 80 angstrom, or 12 nanometers and 8 nanometers respectively, for all my nanoparticle synthesis out there. The protein is hollow because its primary function is iron storage. It serves as the body's iron repository. and. If I'm not mistaken, I believe this protein is also an allosteric protein, but I won't delve too much into that. Um, so iron is available to this protein as iron 2, which enters the protein through a threefold or fourfold channel and is oxidized at a peroxidase site, uh, which are found in the H subunits, to iron 3, and is then sent to a nucleation site and thus begins the, the construction of the core. And I should probably mention that the exact mechanism of this process isn't yet known. You know, while there are speculations um, and proposed uh, mechanisms of it, the exact mechanism isn't really known, so it's, it's a bit of a black box. Um, yeah. Um, ferritin is said to accommodate up to 4,500 iron atoms stored as ferrihydrite, which is essentially a ball of rust. Um, the fascinating thing about this ball of rust, however, is that it is super paramagnetic. That's right, super paramagnetic. Um, it seems like I'm making this word up, but I promise it's real. Um, and while we're on this topic, I think now would be an appropriate time for a brief aside to define some words that I will most likely drop in this episode and most likely drop in future episodes about uh, magnetism, so we will go over them. In case you didn't know, there are many different forms of magnetism. To help keep things in perspective, let's say I have a molecule. Imagine your favorite molecule, if you have one, mine is benzoin, just floating in space, hypothetically speaking. And now let's say that I apply an external magnetic field. Diamagnetism is defined as a magnetic moment within this favorite molecule of yours that is directed against the external field that I have applied. In general chemistry, you may have been taught that diamagnetism is when all of the electrons that are occupying orbitals are paired, and that's true. But obviously not the whole story. Um, and even now, I'm not giving the complete story, but defined simply, that is what diamagnetism is. So, 
Moving on to paramagnetism. Paramagnetism is the permanent magnetic dipole moment that is attributed to your favorite molecule. And, you know, also an attribution of each atom and ion as well. Again, throwing it back to the first term of general chemistry, uh, paramagnetism may be associated with the idea of unpaired electrons in orbitals, which again is true, but not the whole story. Um, and and the, as a brief digression, uh, I shan't even imagine my general chemistry instructor introducing this more in-depth concept of paramagnetism to me during the lesson. I am pretty sure I would have pterodactyl screeched in the middle of my 8 a.m. lecture and fled out of the lecture hall so quickly that the rest of my peers would have reveled in confusion. Um, but, I, but I digress. Uh, so then there is this thing called cooperative or ordered magnetism. Cooperative or ordered magnetism involves short-range interactions between the magnetic dipoles of two or more atoms or molecules. Uh, and these atoms or molecules are known as spin centers. Um, a term that you often hear associated with this concept is coupling, where the magnetic dipole of one spin center affects that of the one adjacent to it. And of this type of magnet magnetism, you know, cooperative magnetism, there are several subtypes. Uh, there is ferromagnetism, um, and I am emphasizing that purposely, um, so ferromagnetism, where the dipoles of the spin centers are configured parallel to each other. Whereas in antiferromagnetism, the spin centers are configured anti-parallel to each other. And um, in this kind of magnetism, there are an equal number of spin centers pointing in one direction as there are spin centers pointing in the opposite direction. So there is zero net moment. To help make this concept a bit more tangible, in ferromagnetism, imagine that you have a hundred arrows and they are all pointing up. In anti-ferromagnetism, you still have 100 arrows, but in this case, 50 are pointing up and the other 50 are pointing down. Um, so just to help visualize. Um, and then there's this thing called metamagnetism, where the spin centers order anti-ferromagnetically or anti-parallel to each other at low temperatures, but then order ferromagnetically or parallel to each other when a strong field is applied. And if we wanted to take magnetism to another level, there is fairy magnetism, fairy magnetism, which is described to be similar to ferromagnetism, according to Orchard, and essentially, the dipoles of sublattices are coupled ferromagnetically to each other, but anti-ferromagnetically to the dipoles of the main crystal lattice structure. That was a mouthful, but another way to think about it is that the number of spin centers pointing in one direction is not necessarily equal to the number of spin centers pointing in the opposite direction because the moments are associated with sites in the crystal structure. And so there is a non-zero net moment. Um, running with the arrow example, I still have 100 arrows, but this time 80 are pointing up and 20 are pointing down, which means that 20 of the spins are essentially canceling an, out another 20 spins, therefore you only have 60 spins. Um, and to compare this with you know, ferromagnetism where all 100 are pointing up, um, 
in that case, the magnetic signal would be much stronger than the one that is uh, very magnetically um, coupled, uh, where only 60 of them um, are technically, like you have a net moment of 60 um, arrows in this case. That's, that's not the actual unit, but you know, for this, for the example, we'll just go with it. And you know, we aren't done yet, folks. Um, we are finally arriving to super paramagnetism, the whole reason I went on this tangent. And so, super paramagnetism is the exhibition of paramagnetism, or, you know, that permanent dipole moment that I was talking about earlier, by a colloidal ensemble. This definition is true of nanoparticles, which I work with, but uh, superparamagnetism apparently has a different meaning for single molecule magnets, which is a whole other thing that I won't get into today, but maybe in a future episode. And if we keep going, uh, <laughs> there is actually this publication that I read not too long ago, and the authors were saying that they had achieved ultra-paramagnetism in some cells that they were working with, and I, I just remember sitting back in my desk chair just thinking to myself, what on earth is happening? Like, what even are magnets? Enigmatic, that's what magnets are, an enigma. Um, anyway, so super-paramagnetism and how that relates to ferritin. Yeah, ferritin, that protein that I was talking about before I got really excited talking about magnets and dove right into that rabbit hole. Um, yeah, so the iron oxyhydroxide core, or the ferrohydrite core, is super paramagnetic. However, while it is super paramagnetic, um, trying to study the magnetic properties of the core was extremely challenging for a variety of reasons. To name a few, first, the protein is huge. We essentially have this magnetic core that is being protected by this gigantic shield of a protein that in itself has a large diamagnetism, which would effectively cancel out a lot of the magnetic signal of the core that our instrument could pick up if you know the iron concentrations weren't high enough. Second, the sample was suspended in water, and water also has a pretty significant diamagnetism, which is another you know, factor that contributes to the cancelling of the magnetic signal. Third, uh, while it is said that ferritin can accommodate up to 4,500 atoms of iron, we were only able to practically reconstitute about 2,000 iron atoms back into the protein before it started crashing out of solution. And, you know, this in itself complicates things. Needless to say, uh, there were several other challenges to this research, and while I really wanted to continue investigating this project, it just, it, it wasn't really practical for the time and resources I had to do it. So, I had to say farewell to Ferritin. Nevertheless, um, I do have a certain attachment to this project. Uh, it does have a special place uh, in my heart, and so who knows, maybe later in the future I will revisit it when I've got the devices to do so, but for now, I'm having a ton of fun with my nanoparticles. Uh, but with that being said, I, I wanted to take a brief moment to talk more about what that project switch was like for me, um, at least initially. Because I'm sure we've all had to experience something similar to that, right? At some point. Um, 
So I was having a conversation with my PI and my postdoc about how I had been struggling immensely with this project. And, you know, for context, uh, this conversation happened about five days before an abstract deadline. So you can imagine that I was just a teeny bit stressed. Um, I remember having read a textbook's worth of publications and reviews just to learn about the protein and how to handle it and what complications there might be when it came to designing my experiment protocols. Additionally, I spent maybe seven months just immersed in the literature trying to optimize the procedures, thinking about air sensitivity, light sensitivity, time sensitivity, being deliberate with the starting material because we just didn't have much to work with. And you know, while I got a thrill diving into the literature for this project, the energy expenditure was very high and the output of data was just very low. And you know, as a result, the conversation I had with my PI and my postdoc was very honest. Albeit reluctant, I presented to my PI a full sheet of paper with all of my concerns scrawled all over the page with bullet points and sub-bullet points and the whole nine yards explaining why any progress for this project was just unreasonably difficult. Um, and I, I personally felt the need to have justifications for every single one of my concerns to convince uh, my PI that I wasn't being idle with my time even though I spent substantially more time at my desk reading papers than I did at the lab bench doing experiments. And you know, if I'm being completely honest, my supervisor he didn't need very much convincing. Um, and if anything, the person who did need convincing was myself. I did all of those things to convince myself that I hadn't been squandering my time, especially since it was my adamant goal to complete my terminal master's program and defend my thesis within two years. You know, and my, my PI saw that I was really struggling and he wanted to do something. And so he asked, you know, if I wanted to switch projects. Um, and you know, my, my answer was almost immediate. I told him, yeah, I want to switch projects. And then he asked me, you know, don't you want to sleep on it? Don't you want to sleep on that decision? You don't have to answer like right now. And I told him, you know, I've made my decision and I'll have that abstract draft to you tomorrow. Um, my PI stepped out of the office for a moment and my postdoc actually asked me how I was doing. And and in all honesty, I was actually confused by this question. Um, so he, he clarified asking me if I would be able to proceed with this project as a functional graduate student. And, you know, I told him I would be okay and that right now I just need to focus on learning everything that I possibly could with this new project so that I can submit by the deadline. Um, and I suppose at the time I was rather ambivalent about the switch because of that deadline for a conference that I had every intention at which to present. Uh, and so, you know, I you know, left my PI's office and I went on a frantic literature search for papers pertaining to this new project to write up an abstract. And it wasn't until after the deadline had passed that I began to feel uh, distressed that I had to switch projects. Um, actually, one of my friends in lab had said that I had become rather aloof. And I certainly felt that way. Uh, I think I think for a period of at least three weeks, I was pretty disinterested in the project, which is extremely uncharacteristic of me because I love all things chemistry. Um, but in retrospect, 
I think the difficulty there was that I had invested so much time and energy on one particular project that I didn't want to spend it on any other project. And I was genuinely afraid that if I invested the same amount of time and energy on this new project, the result would be the same. You know, high energy input, low data output. So, you know, what, what was the point? Why bother? I wanted to bring this up because I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to in some capacity. And I think it's important to bring some attention to it. Um, you know, and it, it wasn't until I started working on the synthesis that my attitude toward the project began to change. And how it changed will be discussed in the next episode of the Project Pivot miniseries. So stay tuned for that. And so, listeners at home, thank you so much for tuning in. If you aren't already a part of the Cake Nation, feel free to follow me on Twitter at chemistrycake and subscribe to the podcast. This is just a friendly reminder to stay hydrated, keep the hype alive, and edify your village. This is Cake, signing off.